Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So we have been in the middle of this series about um, siblings. And we've covered a lot of siblings in Genesis, you know, you know, way back with Cain and Abel and Seth, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and then all of Jacob's sons. So now I think it's time for us to leave the book of Genesis and explore more of the Old Testament. So where are we going today, Erica? So today we're making a huge leap forward in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Samuel and talking about David and his brothers. But before we get to David, just uh, so you're kind of clear on where we're at in the biblical story. So we, 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 dropped, we left off with, with Jacob saving his family in Egypt um, which then leads into the Exodus story where the Hebrew um, the Hebrews have become slaves in Egypt. Moses rescues them out of Egypt. They wander in the desert for 40 years, eventually make it into the promised land. They defeat everyone in the promised land, you know, all the enemies in the promised land. They are now, um, they've been ruled by judges and now they are a nation and they are currently being ruled by a king. Am I missing anything, folks? Anything big before we get to... Nope. I think that adequately gets at the, the high plot points. If, if okay. you were doing a plot synopsis for International Movie Database, you would get it. Okay, so we yeah, are. I, gonna... I don't think this is. I don't think this is important. But the king's name is Saul. Yeah, was... and he's still king. <laughs> yeah. Right, so... Maybe we should say that the first king, yeah, Saul, his top two qualifications, as the Bible describes it, are he's tall and good looking. And that's why he was chosen. The people complain for a king. Mm -hmm. They're tired of having just sort of random judges who are appointed to lead the people. They clamor for a king. Samuel complains to God saying the people have rejected me. And God goes, no, Samuel, they rejected me as their king. But go ahead, let them have a king. And their first choice is let's pick somebody who's tall and good looking. And that's how they end up with King Saul. So basically the prom king, you know, um, is who they're looking for. You know, they're looking for all the qualities that, um, you know, high school students look into prom king. You know, the popular guy, the tall guy, the handsome guy. Um, and, and Saul okay as being king um but he's starting to go off the rail a little bit and that it seems like when Saul does go off the rails there's this underlying attitude of I don't need to be checked by God that like when God mm-hmm. allows this idea of having kings uh, the, the the text seems to assume God's going to be willing to work through having kings just like God been willing to work through judges provided that they let God be the ultimate check on them and that the king is not supposed to be like the other kings of other nations who are, who see themselves as I call the shots. No one is above me. I'm the highest order of things that the Kings were supposed to be servant leaders. And Saul starts to veer away from that thing. And I don't really need to listen to what God says. I can make my own decisions. Yeah. I mean, his, his reign started off well. He was, you know, consulting God on, on everything. And then like you said, Steve, he kind of says, well, I've done so well so far, you know, let me just keep doing what I've been doing. And, you know, um, God's an afterthought now. Right. Right. And, and, and maybe, maybe worse than an afterthought is 
when he be- when God becomes a prop, when it's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to do what I want, and then I'm just going to say, remember, everybody, I'm the one God has chosen. Like, that's even worse than afterthought. That's I'm, I'm just using God and claiming divine right to do whatever I want. Um, and that becomes a worse problem this, as the further the, the, the story of Israel's kings goes on. But it's already there in seed form with Saul. So Saul, um, Samuel, the prophet, is, is continually talking with God throughout all of this. And, and God says, I have somebody else I want to place on the throne. Um, you know, so he sends Samuel to uh, Jesse's family. Um, Jesse is a shepherd. Um, his sons are out working in the field. And God says to Samuel, you will know the person I have chosen when I choose him. And so Jesse calls all his sons in from the field. He lines them up, um, eldest to youngest, um, with the exception of David. And, and Samuel goes through every son, and he's like, okay, God, is this the one? He says, no. Is this the one? No. Is this the one? No. They get through the whole family. And then Samuel asks Jesse, do you have anybody else? <laughs> You know, he's gone through every son of Jesse's and, and God has said, no, no, no. I mean, these are handsome, strong, um, tall men, just like Saul. Why not choose one of them? And so Jesse said, well, I do have this one, you know, youngster over here, David. Um, he pulls David in from the fields and God says, here's your man. I think that's a really good point you, you mentioned there that even in the text, the first at least of uh, Jesse's sons, the the text even says that he was strong and handsome and good looking. So like we're sort of mm-hmm. primed to go, oh, this is this would be the the next heir apparent after Saul if that's how we're picking. And and when Samuel makes that comment to himself, ah, surely this is the one that God has chosen. God's God's answer back is that famous line: God looks on the heart. God doesn't look on outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And, you know, we can have a conversation later on about there are issues in David's heart, too. That will be an issue later on for adult David uh, and the choices that he makes. But on the whole, the principle that God isn't fooled by just do you look like the prom king? Therefore, you should be cast in the role of king. God doesn't fall for that, at least. Um, This is maybe a a place to notice, like part of the the, part of the, the. location of the story and the location of this family are going to be important later on in the big sweeping narrative of the Bible. Jesse happens to live in a town called Bethlehem, and nobody cares about Bethlehem at this point because nobody famous is from there yet. But this is going to be the reason why later on Bethlehem is remembered as the city of David because, oh, this is where his family Jesse is, his dad Jesse was from. And um, later on, why that becomes important for the uh, announcement of the Messiah who will come from Bethlehem that's important because this is where David's family comes from. So there's nothing magical about Bethlehem. It's just sort of this, this goes back to where David's from. And part of the beauty of David's story is that he's a nobody, basically, that, that nobody would have chosen him except God. And that's part of the, I think, part of the, the recurring theme we've been looking at is that when uh, human eyes start casting who's the important one or who's, who's the, the successful person, God has this way of flipping things upside down and going, I picked the, I picked the one everybody else is named a nobody. I mean, we've got the youngest, you know, he's, he's little, um, especially when we get that more so from stories later, you know, uh, when, when Saul gives him his armor to go and face Goliath, the armor is too big for David. So, I mean, he's little, he, he's young, um, everything seems to be going against him. And yet God says, no, this is the next king of Israel. Right. So Samuel anoints him. 
um, as the next king of Israel, but there's a problem. <laughs> Saul's still king. So, like, this is that moment where, like, this story of, of uh, David being chosen, like, is a... There's a pause button and like he's chosen, but he's not going to take the throne for some time. Mm -hmm. And so we get like a couple of other introductory stories that introduce young David uh, or the, you know, the adventures of young David before we get to King David and King David refuses to launch a coup. He refuses to kill Saul or have a fight for it because David is convinced that Saul is still God's anointed and he's not going to try and take the throne while Saul is still alive. In a way, this feels to me a little bit like, um, did you ever see that uh, old Disney movie, animated movie, The Sword and the Stone, about King Arthur when he's a little kid? Um, it, it was yeah. one of my favorites, one of my kids' favorites, too. You know, So it's like the legend of how did King Arthur get chosen to become king? Because um, everybody knows, you know, adult King Arthur with the round table and the knights and maybe the Holy Grail and the knights who say me. Um, but there's um, the story of, of him as young uh, King Arthur who pulls the sword out of the stone and this is what confirms he's the one with the right to, to rule England in a way this is kind of like that it's just like child mm-hmm. it's just like secret story from his childhood that is why we why we should believe that David really is meant to be king Ex- except instead of doing something impressive like pulling a sword out of a stone what David brings is nothing. I mean, like, I think that's part of the beauty of this story is it's the sheer nothingness that David brings. It's not that he's taller, stronger, handsomer, whatever. He is the runt in the family. Every, he's the one who is not even last in line. He didn't even make the bench. I mean, like, he's the one that, that, that dad is like, I'm not even bringing him in for conversation. And yet that's who God chooses. Mm-hmm. So I think one of my favorite early uh, David stories is how he meets King Saul. Uh-huh. So this happens almost immediately after his anointing. It's said that an evil spirit of the Lord, oh, an evil spirit from the Lord tormented King Saul. And so his servants were all like, hey, we see that, you know, this this evil spirit is tormenting you. Therefore, let us go find a musician. Um, I think they're looking for a, a li- liar liar player. Is that how you pronounce yeah. it? The L-Y-R-E? Yeah. Um, to go find one of go find somebody who can play the lie and will, you know, therefore soothe the evil spirit from the Lord. And they bring in kid David and Saul just adored this little kid to pieces mm-hmm. and was all like, Hey, yeah, let this kid remain in my service. Uh, he'll be my armor bearer. Like he'll carry my armor around. And also whenever this evil spirit decides to torment me, he can play soft, soothing music to uh, soothe the savage beast. And so that like, that's how David actually meets Saul is he like, this is immediately after he's anointed and he goes and he goes into service for Saul to calm the evil spirit. This is maybe a point, even though it's a little bit off the topic of siblings and rivalries and that kind of thing, but we do have to wrestle with the weirdness of the biblical text saying an evil spirit from the Lord is sent to Saul. That like that again, not doesn't doesn't usually make the flannel board version of the Sunday school story, but we gotta deal with a God who is willing to work in may in, in means and in channels that we that are unsavory to us. And I wish that the text gave us more about like, what does that mean? Or is this a way of saying that Saul had depression? Is this a way of saying, is is this something 
demonic. I, I, the, the, the text just sort of leaves it, you know, an evil spirit from the Lord. And we're supposed to go, oh, sure, evil spirit from the Lord. That, yeah, that explains it. Um, but even at that, though, what does it mean that this comes from the Lord other than to say this is not outside of God's power or knowing? That it's not like, um, oh, if only God had known that there was this evil spirit afflicting Saul, that God, God allows, permits, causes this, this to happen. And if that makes us uncomfortable, we got to live with that because that's how the text goes. So Can we I, have, go ahead. We have David here, the newly anointed king of Israel, serving the currently serving king of Israel. And as you mentioned earlier, Steve, I find it interesting that um, in all the chances and all the years that David works for Saul and works with Saul, that he, and while he understands that he has been anointed king over Israel, he does not take that power into his own hands um, until the timing is right. Right. He allows God to let things play out however way God wants things to play out. And that's a contrast to how Saul will operate. Because later on, Mm -hmm. when Saul sees David as a threat, Saul does do an awful lot to try and kill David. And David has opportunities later on when they are both grown men. And the opposition becomes much more outright that David deliberately doesn't kill Saul. There's some embarrassing moments when Saul could have been killed when he's going to the bathroom in a cave, for example, and David is hiding out in the cave and doesn't kill King mm-hmm. Saul. Like, again, stories that didn't make it into Bible school curriculums. Um, but um, but I think that seems to be part of what makes David different as a, a character and as a, 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 a king is for whatever other issues he will have later on, he doesn't seem driven to ambition and power the way Saul is willing to succumb to and the way like every other king in human history is. Um, there are going to be other ways that, that David abuses his power, but he doesn't have this, I need to kill my enemies or I need to um, do whatever I have to to take power. Um, that That's a distinctive about David. And it seems like he gets the idea that to be a king in in Israel, you are supposed to be a servant leader, not that it's you're the center of attention and you're the greatest and it's about you know, getting your name carved in stone and having a big palace. It won't be too long before David's descendants misunderstand that and do make a big deal about mm-hmm. themselves too. But for David, there's this moment of maybe there is someone who will not wield power for power's sake, but would be willing to be a servant leader. I, I want to spend a minute, if you're willing to, um, the way, what, what happens when little runty kid David gets anointed by Samuel back at that, that story, you know, he's the last one called in and God says, this is the one, the action that Samuel does seems weird to us, but it, it's really important and made sense in the biblical era. So that like when, when Samuel gets the message from God, this is the one that is chosen to be king, Samuel gets out a sheep's horn full of oil and dumps it on David's head. And and everybody reading that story in ancient Israel would have gone, sure, that's what you do when you're anointing a king. You cover them in oil. And we, all these thousands of years later, who have different symbolic acts for setting apart leaders, might look in and go, that seems awfully messy. Why is that happening? But that act, that's what you do to set apart the person who's been set aside for a particular role in in the ancient Near East and in particular in ancient Israel, that that idea is when a new priest is set apart, the new king is going to be coronated. They are anointed and anointed with oil. We should probably picture olive oil, not motor oil, but they're they're anointed with oil as the sign 
kind of like the divine presence on them. And it's that word, that idea of being anointed that gets held on to in Israel's uh, later history and hope. Because the word for anointed is the word we, we pronounce Messiah, or if you're a Greek speaker, Christ. So that the title Messiah or Christ is not Jesus' last name, but that, that it, it's, a, it's a title of being set apart and in particular a royal title. Yeah, and we, we do still anoint to today, but we definitely do not use an entire sheep horns full of <laughs> oil to do so. We, we tend to anoint, you know, on, on sick beds, um, on deathbeds, uh, for healing services, at baptisms. Um, some countries do anointing at their coronations um, of kings and queens. Um, but we tend to just have a little tiny thimble full and like right. basically just enough oil to like coat a thumb to right. make the sign of the cross. Um, but that is certainly not all faith practices. I think I once watched a baptism, a Greek Orthodox baptism, and they also take a goodly amount of oil. I think a small bowl's worth and dumps it on the person's head Um which is probably more similar to what it would be like to have a sheep's horn full of oil. Um, but it, it, it is so interesting because it's, it's not like cooking vegetable oil where it has hardly any scent, but it's like scented oil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once you're like, once the oil is dumped on you, like that scent kind of just follows you around for a good while, especially thinking about like the Middle East where it's not like a daily practice to bathe, you're going to smell probably pretty good for a while. Like it's, which is a good reminder of you've been anointed. Like that's not just a today thing. That's a forever thing. I mean, eventually the smell will go away, but it'll take a good while. I I think like, honestly, even though it seems like a little bit humorous to us now that that's part of the point of how this emerged as a practice that like, why, who would have come up with the idea of, I know we'll we'll set apart our King by dabbing them with oil. This is sort of a way of saying the same way that like, there's this aura of good smell around them. Like there's a, yeah, the Mm -hmm. divine, presence is on them that's probably how these kind of practices emerge because again it's not like there's no commandment in the ten commandments you shall set apart kings by covering them in oil this becomes a practice in the ancient world because there's sort of this lasting it's a symbol it's a ritual act that that conveys the idea of the of the divine presence resting on you for a long time to come afterwards and yet in in an era when not only we, are you not showering to shower off the good smell? Everybody else is not showering, which means the bad smell that's on them from working and sweating and being around animals is there all the time. So you're set apart as the king because you're the one who smells good. <laughs> that, that again, I, I think it's important that um, as even though there's not the rivalry exactly between um, David and his brothers, there is the sense of reversal that is key to the story that the descriptors that um, make David stand out are just that he's the one who's too young and thought of as a nobody that even dad thinks he doesn't even qualify for consideration. And that that's exactly how God operates is that God chooses the nobody, the not good enough. So that didn't even make the team and lifts them up into positions of power, maybe because they're the ones who best understand how to wield power. Well, there's, there's a line from, um, 
the the one Avengers movie uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because I'm just going to go full comic book nerd here for a moment. And we are reintroducing my kids to the Marvel comic book movies now that they're a little bit older. Uh, and there's a line in the the, Cap- the first Captain America movie where so like the 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 myth around Captain America is this runty guy who's the you know the the small guy, small frame, small body, uh, but has good character and good heart is given this serum that will make him super strong and super agile and whatever. And there's a point where he asks the scientist who's going to inject him with this, why did you pick me to be the one? I'm just small, I'm little, whatever. And uh, the, the response comes, because you're little and the people who are, who've been picked on all their life know how to use power well for others. People who've been strong all their lives quickly misuse it. And it seems like that's part of the David saga too, that he knows what it's like to be mistreated or to be the young one and knows then how to look out for others who have none. Well, and the idea of David being little and being the youngest comes back when we get the David and Goliath story. And this is part of the story that often does not make flannel boards, the Sunday school stories and everything. We know about the slingshot. We know about, you know, sometimes we even know about the armor of Saul and him offering that to David. His brothers are there. At, at this battle, you know, his, uh, in fact, David, the whole reason David shows up to this battle is to give his brothers bread um, for the battle. And, and they're telling him, you know, they're all terrified of, of, of Goliath as is the rest of Israel. And when David shows up and says, well, I'll take him on his brothers try to dismiss him. Um, you know, they, they're like, no, David, you're too small. You're too young. Like you can't do this. And yet, you know, because maybe, maybe because of the anointing that he has and because he knows that he's the future King of Israel and he knows that God is with him, you know, that's why he goes forth and he says, you know what? I can handle this. I've taken down bears. I've taken down lions barehanded. Like I can handle this guy and I'm going to show up. And he knows that he can do it because God's on his side. And that's the only way he's going to be able to do this is because God's on his side. That, that again, it seems like it sets the table for what later Israel would see as why David makes a decent king compared with others is that at David's best, he understands that it's not his power that makes him able to win, but it's God who is acting. And so it's it's not like, whatever I do, I know I'll win because I'm the strongest or the toughest or whatever. But he says, I'll trust in God and God will be the one who will... Uh, who will fight for us, who will fight on our behalf. So that there becomes to be this tradition you get throughout the Psalms, especially, that will say things like, you know, um, don't put your trust in chariots or soldiers or armies or whatever. Mm -hmm. Don't put your trust in riches, but instead trust in God. God gives the victory. And it goes back to even Israel's ancient memory back at the Red Sea, that when they're about to leave Egypt, God's response to them is, you guys don't have to fight. You don't have to pick up a weapon to fight off Pharaoh at all. You sit there and I will be the one who delivers you today that at Israel's best, they understood not to trust in their own um, physical power or in violence, but to trust that God would be the one who works victory for them. And that transforms unexpected tools into um, conquering weapons, like a bunch of smooth stones from the river become the thing that knocks down Goliath. So it, it seems to me like as, as Israel held on to these stories about David, they didn't just hold on to them because they were neat, fun stories about David, but they were somehow supposed to hold on to or, or carry along the memory of how God works in the world. And that like their quintessential king gets remembered as the nobody that God lifted up mm-hmm. and that their power came from, not from their might or the size of their empire, but trust in God. 
that that said something about the values that were important, that they that Israel was supposed to be the kind of people that looked out for those who were stepped on and lifted up those who were lowly and were okay with the idea that God would take the powerful from their thrones from time to time. So like, again, flash forward to Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus' mom, Mary, starts singing a song about, here's God's victory. God's, you know, scatters the proud and lifts up the lowly. She didn't invent that. Mary has like just drawn on the tradition Mm -hmm. that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years of, oh yeah, this is really how God has been always acting. Even though sometimes we co-opt it and flip it and assume I'm strong. God must have made me strong. I can step on whoever I want. And this lowly, young scrawny kid king is the example that every king after him will be compared to. Right. Not Saul, the strong, the handsome, the tall, the first king of Israel. No, the second king of Israel is the one that every king after him will be compared. Either they were like David or they weren't like David. And that that's important too, because even though David has those positive things going for him, his his son Solomon will have other ways he's remembered and could be accounted. Well, you know, Solomon is the one who gets the, makes the country richer and has be, even better military success. But they don't look back to Solomon later on. The books of Kings and Chronicles will look back and let David be sort of the 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 bar again. We'll have to look in further conversations about ways that David blows it because he does, um, and not just in the most famous episode about with with him taking advantage of and assaulting Bathsheba. Um, but there are other later things that are terrible and sad, and again, don't make the Sunday school curriculum because a civil war breaks out on David's watch um, mm-hmm. between him and, in fact, his son, and it becomes a lot more like an episode of Game of Thrones than I ever heard in Sunday school. Um, but at David's best, it was that understanding of you're in power because God looks on the lowly, not because you're super awesome. And you're supposed to use your power for the sake of lifting mm-hmm. up the lowly, not for your own name or legacy or greatness. There's a line of Martin Luther's that comes to mind. Um, he, Luther says, God is always taking beggars and making them kings. Um, and that's not literally what happens in David's story, but I like that notion that like Luther recognizes that David's story isn't a one-off or an exception, but it's closer to like the rule. That's how God operates. It's picking the nobodies and making them into somebodies. Um, and it's whoever the world has disregarded um, and God sort of shows special favor and lifts them up. So that it shouldn't surprise us maybe when someone like St. Paul can later on say in uh, his letter to the Corinthians, God takes the foolish things in the world, the things that aren't, the things that are weak, to shame the strong and the wise and the powerful. And that Paul seems to think this has been God's MO all along. This is always how God operates. We shouldn't be surprised when God reverses things yet again. Are there any immediate like practical things we can think of? Like I'm, I'm it's doubtful any of us will be anointed monarch of any countries in any time soon. Um, so what what does the story like this mean for us living out our ordinary daily lives? I, I think I think you've already said it that God use like can use anybody to do God's work. you know, just because you consider yourself little and whether that's physical or in some other way, God can still use you. So maybe that cuts two ways. If I'm the one who feels like I'm not good enough, there's this reminder, God reserves the right to use me. And on the other hand, if I'm the one going around telling other people, nope, God can't use you. God can't use you. You're not acceptable. You're not acceptable. The moment I say those words out loud, it's sometimes like taunting God and God's like, oh, really? Um, And God like, now, because now you've said it. Now that's exactly what I'm going to pick. 
um, that that whatever side of that equation I find myself on, I need to remember God picks the least likely uh, sometimes, wh- whether I'm the one who considers myself not worthy or I'm labeling somebody else not worthy. And we said that, you know, when when Samuel comes to David and God says, I, I look at the heart, not at the outside, it reminds me, I think it's a line out of the book of Hebrews, um, you know, being a person after, you know, David was a man after God's own heart. Um, and so it, we, we said David messes up a lot. I mean, he's got some of the biggest mess ups and screw ups in scripture in, in some ways. And yet it's his heart after God and his willingness to recognize often when he makes those mistakes and repent, um, that's what we're supposed to strive after. That's the way we're supposed to. That's how I take the David story is, you know, that heart, that longing for God, God, that wanting to be near God. Um, you know, even when I mess up, even when I make mistakes, you know, okay, let's go back to God. Uh, let's seek forgiveness and let's, you know, restore that relationship that David's so well known for. I, I, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Erica, because it seems like an important thing to say about David, that while it is true that the the mm-hmm. biblical witness sees him as the example in the bar, and also the biblical witness acknowledges his uh, feet and other parts of clay and his many shortcomings, the, the thing about David that's remarkable is that when he when he is confronted with the ways he messes up, he tries to make improvements that instead of saying it doesn't matter what my faults are because I'm God's chosen. So take me as I am. I'm not going to change. He realizes, Oh, I've messed up and I need to change and I need to get things right again. And that David is capable both of repentance and sorrow and being corrected as well as like remorse when the, the consequences of actions um, ripple out in ways he that nobody wanted to happen, but become terrible. So, like later, when an, a civil war does break out between him and uh, uh, an opposing army led by his son Absalom (spoiler alert), um, David can even grieve over the death of his son, who has become his enemy. That like mm-hmm. he's not a one-note character. He's not a I'm right no matter what. Anybody else who's against me is awful and evil. He can grieve even when the enemy is uh, has died, and that's something we aren't. Again, we maybe maybe don't appreciate or we sort of flatten and caricature him as he was great. And if you say anything bad about him, you're saying something bad about God's anointed. No, he David is able to realize his mistakes. And then when confronted with them, was courageous enough to change them, not to just defy and say it's not a problem. So maybe that's a good segue. We should say next time we'll pick up with more of the messy parts of David's saga uh, as we continue on the story, because there's more to be said about David. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, then um, join us next time for further conversation as we take a look at sibling reversals and rivalries here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. All right, bye.